live from the District of Columbia. You are listening to the Black Fundraisers Podcast, a weekly podcast that celebrates, inspires, and equips black fundraisers to excel and positively impact black communities. With your host, Kia Kroon. Good day, good people. Welcome to season two of the Black Fundraisers Podcast. I am Kia Kroon, the founder and host of the Black Fundraisers Podcast, your weekly podcast that celebrates, inspires, and equips Black fundraisers to positively impact Black communities. If this is your first time tuning in, I just want to thank you and welcome you into a growing global community of listeners and subscribers. You're in good company. Thank you for tuning in. And as I always say, you could be anywhere of your choosing in these internet streets. So I'm absolutely thrilled you've decided to tune in today. Good people. Last week, we kicked off a special five-part series entitled Exploring Racial Justice in Philanthropy. And throughout this special series, I've been having conversations with Black philanthropy executives centered on the need for racial equity and racial justice in philanthropy. We're discussing the manner in which these leaders are promulgating and operationalizing racial equity and racial justice to uplift organizations led by Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, aka BIPOC-led nonprofits. We are really getting under the hood and looking at what it's going to take to better support, to better fund, and to build power and voice within BIPOC-led nonprofits that are on the front line serving people and communities of color who we know are disproportionately impacted by a myriad of social issues. Today's guest is Tanya Allen, president and CEO of the McKnight Foundation, a Minnesota-based family foundation that seeks to advance a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and planet can thrive. McKnight annually grants about $100 million in support of climate solutions in the Midwest, an equitable and inclusive Minnesota, the arts, neuroscience, and international crop research. Tanya Heads and all women, majority people of color, senior leadership team, and a diverse staff of about 50 people. Tanya has led philanthropic, business, government, and community partnerships that catalyze fresh thinking, test new approaches, and advance public policy. Throughout her 25-year career, she's been a bridge builder and a civic diplomat. She has been lauded for her results-driven and highly influential collaborative approach by the Chronicle of Philanthropy, the Funders Network, the Cranes Detroit business, and has received a number of accolades. Tanya chairs the Council on Foundations and is the co-chair for the Executives Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. 
She served on many other philanthropic boards as well. Prior to joining McKnight in 2021, Tanya served as the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation, a private foundation in Detroit dedicated to improving schools, neighborhoods, and the well-being of families in Southeast Michigan. She's also served as a program officer at the C.S. Mott and Thompson Macaulay Foundation. Tanya champions diversity, inclusion, and equity practices and is driven by her passion for justice. She has collaborated with numerous cross-sector partners to advance individual, institutional, sectoral, and community-wide equity strategies. I believe Tanya Allen walks it like she talks it. And I've got to tell you, if you've not heard the story about her journey to Minneapolis to lead the McKnight Foundation, you'll hear about it today and you are in for a real treat. I hope Tanya's story inspires you as much as it did me. So without further ado, let's get into it. Stand by as I bring Tanya Allen to the Black Fundraisers podcast stage. Hello, Tanya. Welcome to the Black Fundraisers podcast. I'm so glad you're here joining me this morning. Oh, thank you, Kia. I'm really glad to be here with you. Yes, you have such an incredible story, and I know that our listeners are in for a real treat. I know that it's sure to be inspirational to them. I just want to go there, Tanya. I want to jump right in. I would like for you to tell the good people listening a little known and fun fact about yourself. Well, you know, I think this one is a a pretty interesting one. So I went to nine different schools between kindergarten and high school, and I spent four years at one high school. So it just tells you a lot about how much I moved around as a child, which I think is I uh, often think that it's very much connected to my ability to just kind of roll with change. (laughs) Hey, roll with change. And this is in Detroit, your hometown. That's exactly right. So I like a lot of people, you know, I don't know where you grew up, Kia, but a lot of times when we grow up in different communities, we tend to stick to that side of town. If it's the west side or the east side or north side, whatever it may be. And in Detroit, I actually lived everywhere. So it was really helpful for me to kind of like understand the city, the different dynamics, the different cultures that kind of show up in the singular place. Absolutely. And just so you know, I grew up in East Oakland, California. So uh, I know all about it. And because we moved to Richmond, I don't know how familiar you are with Richmond, California, but I would take a bus like an hour and a half because I was so adamant about staying at my Oakland-based high school. So so I was over it. I was like, I'm not changing. I don't want to leave my buddies. So I tortured myself an hour and some change both ways on public transportation to get to school. Yeah, but it probably taught you such great independence and determination. And uh, so I get it and I, I appreciate it because I think a lot of times we heard so much about like, childhood experiences, and they've all been categorized now more recently in negative ways. Like these are our traumas. Whether 
sometimes they are traumatic experiences, but a lot of times they're skill building experiences, experiences that's building resilience and strength and power um, and confidence. And so uh, I just think we got to make sure we look at both sides of the coin. You're absolutely right about that. So Tanya, for the benefit of listeners who may not know, you spent 16 years at the Detroit-based Skillman Foundation, where you rose through the ranks from a program director to a VP to the president and CEO. I know that it's a community where you made a remarkable and transformative impact and a community that you loved and cherished dearly. So when December came, December of 2020, and I came across the news that you were stepping down to become the next president and CEO at the Minneapolis-based McKnight Foundation, I saw the announcement and I literally said to myself out loud, Tanya, I was sitting right here. I said, oh yeah, this sister is definitely, definitely up to something. Okay. I knew it. I knew it. And I, and I grabbed your press statement and you said something that really resonated with me in your, your press announcement. I'm quoting you. I feel called to this remarkable institution and to the unique opportunities and challenges of Minnesota. Then I came across an essay you wrote, you you might think a sister's been stalking you a little bit. (laughs) I came across an essay you wrote entitled, George Floyd Made Me Move. And the first sentence moved me to the edge of my seat. You wrote, and I'm again quoting you, I moved to Minnesota for a man and I left my husband in Detroit temporarily. But you went on to say, I moved here because George Floyd, the man, symbolized the movement. Wow. I'd like for you to take a moment and talk about this feeling of being called and how that feeling coupled with George Floyd's murder prompted this seminal move for you? Thank you for that. Well, Kia, I think I'm like everybody in the country was moved by young people who filled the streets of our country, who filled the street of cities across the world. I went out and I protested with them, but I also knew like they didn't need me out on the streets. They needed me like they needed everybody else in the country to do more than what we were doing. So I just had this, I don't know if it was a longing or a deep desire to do something that would be additive and and that would allow us to make sure that this wasn't just a moment, that it really was a movement. And as I was thinking about that and um and just letting it sit in my spirit, this opportunity came about. And what's so interesting about it is they had called me the first time around when they were starting the search kind of just before COVID. And I was absolutely not interested in it. But when the opportunity came this time, I really just said, this city is so important not just to Minnesota or just to the country, like it's so important to the world that a place where such deep tragedy has existed. And it isn't just George Floyd. And so it just felt like here's this place that is going through the dark, its darkest days. And could it actually take a moment, reorganize itself 
come out with a new narrative and new behaviors and new practices that not that weren't just only good for Minneapolis and St. Paul or for the full state of Minnesota, but could it could we be an example, a beacon for the country? And I think that's the country deserves that. And I think so does the city. Like Minneapolis deserves the ability to be able to loose itself from the narrative. It's the place where Black men are killed or it's the place where George Floyd is killed. And so um, the combination of those two things, this notion of like just really wanting to be present right in the middle of the movement and to be supportive of the folks who were leading it, because there were lots of young people in this who day in and day out led lots of older people in the t- in this town who were taking care of George Floyd Square a year after his death. I mean, so there were just like people who were sacrificing deeply. And so for me to move from Detroit, which is my hometown, and to move here, it was a sacrifice, but it felt like it that sacrifice paled in comparison to the sacrifices that others made. And so I just wanted to step in that moment. And to be bold, like to let young people lead me, to be bold, to make the contributions I could make, and to hopefully take a lot of the experiences and lessons that I was learning in Detroit, and to be able to make them realize, can they also be applied in another place with other leaders? And can we realize a vision that is stronger and more powerful than we've ever thought before? I really appreciate that. And that's a... Big sacrifice, but I would agree when you think about the rewards of that kind of sacrifice and when you see those people that those elders, those young people that are doing the right thing, doing what they believe to do is right to honor George Floyd's legacy and holding out hope that things are going to change for the better. That's really inspirational. I want to talk about this calling because there's something to be said when you say, I feel called. We know you'll get the job done. I know folks that would say, I could bet my last dollar on Tanya Allen. She's a bad sister, right? There's something different to me about feeling that call and going into the work with that purpose. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it because it really is the only reason I'm here is because deeply rooted in my faith. When the opportunity came, I really honestly, I thought like I call, I talk to these people. I'm trying to be influential. I'm like, I'll tell them what I think they need to do and then they should go off and hopefully I've influenced them. But when I got into prayer about this, there was such certainty in my spirit I didn't even worry about whether or not I was going to get the job. It was like, oh, I'm going to Minneapolis. I have the job and I have the call. Like I felt God was speaking to me to say, you have to get up out of your comfortableness and be uncomfortable and actually shift and move and listen to me. A divine interruption in my life. It just like really took me a different way. And honestly, like there was, I I often say two things. One is, it's like, if you have butterflies in your stomach, the answer should always be yes, right? Like, so if it's like that moment where it's like, 
a little bit of fear, but a lot of excitement, then your answer always should be yes. And I felt that moment, but I also felt a great, I felt a lot of fear. Felt like in the middle of that fear was you can't ignore the fear, but you could never let it stop you. And so I just pushed through, honestly, and and pushed through with the confidence that if you're called, then you're not only are you equipped to do what you're supposed to do, but you're going to be given all of those other things that you need. So even in places where you're weak, even the places where you don't have the resources, all of that stuff is going to follow if you're in alignment with the purpose and the call. This is beautiful. Thank you for expounding on that that call. I think that listeners will appreciate that. I certainly appreciate that. And it's a reminder that when we feel the discomfort of a new experience or something that might challenge us and work muscles, we might not have worked or work muscles in a different way. And as a woman of faith, which I share with listeners all the time, you know, how faithful, how much of a woman of faith I am to embrace that. You know, that's a good reminder. Good people listening. I hope that that blessed you because that is true. Very, very true and very beautifully, beautifully stated. Tanya, I know that you've heard, just like all the rest of us over the last more than a year now, all of these reference to the alleged racial reckoning brought on by George Floyd's murder. And you've seen corporate foundations and otherwise pledge what's estimated to be $50 billion in charitable gifts for nonprofits in the name of racial equity. We've seen institutions like the Ford Foundation and others announce new funding priorities and new dollars in a racial equity or racial justice priority. So we can say rightfully so that racial equity in philanthropy is trending, right? Do you believe we are really at a different point in philanthropy in our country on these issues around this issue, this topic of racial equity? And if so, how do we sustain that? Well, that I mean, I think the last part of your question is the most important part is how do we sustain it? Yes, I do think we're at a different position than we've ever been before. However, I have not seen evidence that we have actually changed and that our change is durable. So this is, as you know this as a Black woman, in our country, we always make progress on race. But what I would say, I call it like the seven-year progress. Like we make it for about seven years, and then there's a rollback. And that rollback usually comes with great consequences to Black folk. Like there are public policy, there are all kinds of different things that will just kind of like underestimate. It takes wealth out of Black people's pockets, destroys homes, it segregates community, like all kinds of different things show up. What I believe our responsibility in philanthropy is right now is to make sure that the last year, two, three years doesn't fade away in the next four years. So I'm all about How do we make sure that we extend this? How do we make sure that the resources that are flowing 
actually are getting to the issues and the topics that actually will change results for Black people. And I think a lot of times, just because you give money for Black causes, we assume that that translates into impact. But we all know that intent and impact are two very different things. It's always great when they're congruent. But when they're mismatched, (laughs) that's the most disappointing time. And so I think what we have to focus on is like, how do we make these issues congruent? So are we actually getting resources into communities? Are those community, are those resources getting into the pockets of people? Is that giving them skills to be able to elevate their lives via new opportunities, uh, new businesses, new homes, building wealth, getting access to higher quality education. Those are long-term issues. And we can invest deeply in those to make changes, but those are not the things that I feel like we're talking about, right? We're And nor is, I think, their discipline to the way that we're giving. So a lot of the giving feels like guilt-driven, or I am momentarily compelled to do this because I feel if I don't do it, then people will judge me or feel like I'm not doing the right thing as a philanthropic institution. Tell me what your long-term commitment is. That's what I'm interested in. Not if you decided to do something for one year or if you decided to do a three-year initiative. What's your 10-year commitment? What's your 20-year commitment? Before I came to McKnight, at the Skillman Foundation, and we actually stalled the conversations because I departed, but we were talking about what does it look like for us to make a 20-year commitment on this work? And McKnight luckily has already made this long-term commitment on racial equity, which is why I came. But that's what we have to hear from people. And then the final thing I guess I would say is, is that we have to create some accountability measures, Kia, because We have all of these corporations who are saying like, yes, I'm going to put money on this. I'm going to give philanthropic money. What I'm more interested in is what of your operational money are you going to dedicate around racial equity inside of your shop? What are the metrics that you're going to use that you're going to hold accountable so that you can decide and see whether or not you're hiring Black folk, whether or not those Black folks are being promoted, whether or not they have equitable pay? whether or not they have access to entry level or even higher level jobs at a higher rate, um, or are they stuck in those entry level jobs? Like investigate your systems that have this bias and racism in them, eliminate that and show us over the next 10 years, how your organization becomes inclusive, equitable, and transformative. That's what I'm mostly interested in. If that's the, that's when I think we get to durable change, not whether or not we can give charitably to a black to a black led organization. Nothing wrong with that. But it has to be more than that. Right. So I'm hearing commitments and, you know, you making society better. What are you doing to get your house together? Right. That's what I'm hearing. Well, I mean, it's all of us like, right. If I'm telling you like, oh, we need to have a more healthy lifestyle and you look at me and you're like, well, you don't look like you have a healthy lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) So how, you know, if I'm eating hamburger and fries every day, then it's hard for me to give you advice about like whether or not you should eat a salad or you need to eat mixed vegetables or whatever. But so I think that 
the internal has to match the external. And I think right now we have the external outpacing most of these internal systems and practices and leadership throughout all of the institutions in our country. And it is time. The real reckoning is when we can get those in alignment, because when we get both of those things in alignment, then I think we get to durable change. That's right. I love that. And the internal matching the external This is a great place to make this segue because I did a little research and learned that you lead an all-female team comprised primarily of women of color and senior leadership roles, or at least that was the case when you came onto the McKnight Foundation. Now, I'm obviously not aware what, if any, changes have taken place, but I was intrigued by that because having a diverse all-female team is unheard of in the philanthropy sector, which we know is riddled with its own diversity challenges and structural inequities that have resulted in inequitable giving to Black and BIPOC-led organizations. I'm curious to hear from you, what role do you believe women of color will play in challenging or promulgating racial justice or racial equity in the philanthropy sector? What role will women of color play in that? I think that's a great question. Two things I would just say before we go there. At McKnight, six years ago, if you looked at our executive leadership team and then our programmatic leadership team, there wasn't one person of color. Today, if you look at our senior leadership team and our programmatic team, I think there are, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there are three people who are not people of color. Now, the key to this, right, and many of them are women leaders, um, but the key to any of this is that you can't change the face you got to change the faces and you got to change the place, right? So our goal, which we talked about, is like, how do we actually embody these diverse experiences, an inclusive nature and an equitable environment? And so that's my challenge now is like, let's get beyond the diversity and let's actually create something new and different. Now, I would just say around women of color, I would say this. I think that women of color as you know, are like moving, shifting, changing things in a very powerful way throughout philanthropy and in every field. Now, what I think happens is that in philanthropy, you still see the preference for male voices, the preference for male leadership, even though women, it's predominantly a women's field. Philanthropy is. If you go to most foundations, they're full of women. And so I think in these moments, like Black women, I think we have the opportunity to be more collaborative than anybody has ever been in our field. We have an opportunity to bring people along in a way that we have not done before. And we also have an opportunity to take care of the people in the field. And I think that's something that we just have not done very well. Like we have pushed and have been ambitious for these broad scale changes, but we have not been ambitious for what does it take to get there? And how do we make sure that people not only who are trying to drive that work, that they actually can be whole (laughs) as they're trying to create change. And so I think those are kind of like the unique nature of Black women and how we show up. I've participated in a couple of research projects where 
they basically try to figure out like how do black women who are executives how do you deal with like all of the crap i was going to curse all of the crap that's coming at you and what's been really interesting about that is what i've found is that black women support each other like i have so many other friends who are black women ceos who have my back if i have a question if i need mentoring they will pick up the phone to support me. And I can do that. And I do that for others. And I haven't necessarily seen that as broad across any of them. Not to say that men aren't powerful in that way. They are. But I think it it just is a resonance with Black women. So I think this notion of like, uh, you know, I I don't want to propagate the myth of Black women's strength. But at the same time, I don't want to ignore that there are strong Black women who are leading who support so many others who are always constantly lifting and caring at the same time, like aiming for change, but also loving. And I, the last thing I guess I would say about this Kia is that I, one of the things that's always strange to me about philanthropy, which is in the Greek original form, the love of people, right? That we never talk about love, right? And so I often talk about love and philanthropy, like we have to be loving and not kind and not sweet and all that, like loving, like what would, if you love somebody, if you love the people you were trying to deal with, how do you get to the root causes that creates challenges for them? And if that love, if you can lead with love, then it actually allows you to anchor on tougher issues and fight for those tougher issues. And I think there's no better people (laughs) than black women who've had that experience time over time. And so if we can bring that and share it with the field and expand that kind of experience, I think the field is going to be remarkably better. Thank you for sharing that about the quality of the support that you enjoy as a Black CEO, support you're getting from other Black CEOs, female CEOs. I think about the ways that I so into other Black women. As a Black female fundraiser for almost 20 years, right? How I so into young Black women and even young Black brothers who fewer who want to embark on careers in like fund development, fundraising, philanthropy. That tribe and having that tribe is so important. And I come across, just like you probably do, anecdotal material that talks about the glass ceiling and how lonely it is at the top for a lot of us. So that's really encouraging to hear that. And I want the good people listening to really think about like, as you're listening to Tanya, as you're listening to this conversation, who's in your tribe? How are they sewing into your life? How are they encouraging you What are you giving? What are you sharing? How are you showing that love? And who better to purport that than a Black woman who knows what hell feels like, knows being oppressed, but still finds the strength and the love to care and uphold, show the better side of humanity. I believe that. I'm in full agreement with you. And we have to be so purposeful about doing it and not just receiving it. So I early, I mean, kind of like mid-career, I someone asked me like, 
Can you give me some names of young people that you really think are just amazing? And what I found was that the group of people that I was mentoring at the time, they were younger, like just high school and college, which is great. But I didn't have like that generation of women that were right behind me. Like I hadn't done enough to really support them. And so it re oriented me, refocused me to be able to say, not only am I just not going to support my peers, I'm not, I'm going to have this relationship with those who have come before me and I can't reach back to gens. Like I got to reach back the next gen too. So how do I help curate and create a space and enabling environment? How do you use the power? You know, like I always describe power My definition of power is the ability to rewrite the rules. So how are we rewriting the rules so that people have entry into rooms, into discussions? How are we sponsoring them into those conversations? Not just mentoring, like give them an invitation into the room, introduce them, lend them your influence, credibility, whatever it may be, so that they actually have the ability to move in that room with some authority. And so those are the kinds of things that I think we have to be so intentional and purposeful about. And I've been even more purposeful about doing that and and creating communities of women, particularly of all women, honestly, but particularly of Black women. Like, how are we backing each other if we no longer want to be the only one? Like, I'm still surprised sometimes that I am I find out like I'm the first black woman. I'm like, it's 2021. How am I the first black woman to chair this particular university's board or first black woman to chair the council on foundations? I might be the first, but the one thing I can guarantee for you, I won't be the last because my job is to make sure that I'm as I'm lifting, I'm pulling. That's right. I love that. That is absolutely beautiful. This is really fulfilling having this conversation to you for so many reasons. We're at the point in our conversation, I like to pose what I call a bonus question. And I got a good one for you. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. I'm ready. Although I've enjoyed, I found this conversation to be fun and and very thought provoking. But this is where we do have a little fun here. So my question for you is this, Tanya, let's say you can have dinner with someone or several folks, I won't have you to just hone in on one person. So someone or several people from the past or present, who are your dinner guests and what's for dinner? Mm -hmm. So I don't know the names of my guests, but I'll tell you who they are. I think I would have one person from every generation in my family line since they were brought from Africa to the U.S. all the way up to my great-great-grandchildren. You know, I have this mantra that I live for my ancestors and for those who are yet to be born. And I want to, I would love to just meet them, to spend time with them, to see, like, this is what we, this is who we are. This is what we, we are creating. And this is the impact in the world that we've made, even if it's making the impact. And, you know, I always say leaders make impact in their worlds and you define how big your world is. Sometimes it's your house. Sometimes it's your family. Sometimes it's your neighborhood. It's your state, whatever it may be. 
And I just would want us to celebrate that, celebrate the fact that we are, our lineage is making an impact in our world. And then I think for dinner, I would have macaroni and cheese because I got a great recipe <laughs> that I got from my ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. What else you got with the mac and cheese now? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, uh, I probably, I'm, I'm a more like I love lasagna. I love mac and cheese. I love like salmon. So this doesn't sound like a good meal, Kia, all together. So that's why I'm hesitant. This is your but. dinner. This is this is your dinner. You make the you make the rules. What did you say? You the person with yeah, the you write the rules. This yeah, is you your dinner. Right. So right, you right. want to so have, I would have I would have salmon, maybe mahi mahi. I'd have some maybe chicken skewers, you know, that kind of thing. Or um, mac and cheese, lots. Of, I would have like a lovely watermelon salad. Hey. Kind of things. <laughs> this is your dinner. You, This is you and your ancestors and your, what do they call? I'm, I'm, I can see the word here and, and can't, it's not quite coming out. You know, with all descendants and the future. Yes, descendants. yes. Yeah. So we got to be comfort food, I think, not uh, anything uh, my husband would say. So if my husband was here, he'd be like, oh, you got to have baked beans and ribs. <laughs> he sounds like he'd be like somebody that would be at my dinner because I believe my dinner would have all of that. Some some greens <laughs> and I go real old school with some neck bones in them or some oh. ham. Oh, yeah, I go all true. hot water cornbread. You know, I was you know, talking. It's so funny. I was just thinking like, oh, when you said greens, I would love some hot water cornbread. Listen, <laughs> people, listen, this is true story. And some people think that, you know, oh, it's unprofessional, this, that, and the third. Whenever I have an icebreaker and people ask what you like, little known fact about Kia, my absolute fave is cornbread and greens. As long as, if, if I can have a good bowl of greens and I can make a mean pot of greens, I need some cornbread to sop up. Or if I'm feeling fancy, and we know how simple the hot water cornbread is, so but if I'm feeling particularly fancy, I might fry up some hot water cornbread, you know, because mm -hmm. I was taught by one of the best. So... Yeah, that's my, my, I love my country comfort, comfort foods. Yeah, well, I think I would probably go with sausages and vegetables. That's one of my favorite. Mm -hmm. My grandmother used to make it. So when you get to Minnesota, when you visit, I want you to come by the house and teach me how to make that uh, hot water cornbread because mine doesn't really come out that great. Yours sound like it's the right. Oh recipe. man, I got you. But yeah, I'm happy to share that demo that that recipe because it's it's one of, I was taught by one of the best, one of the last hot water cornbread legends, you know, and that's <laughs> the late great Shirley Crow. So I'm happy to share. Well, I just want to thank you again. This has been such a delightful conversation. I couldn't have imagined having it with anybody else. So I really want to thank you for joining us and sharing with us what an inspiration you are. Oh, thank you, Kia. And I really appreciate you and the inspiration that you're providing, creating community, changing narratives, sharing stories, inspiring all of us to do our best and that there is even more for us to do. So thank you. I just want to encourage you listening to take what has been shared here 
explore ways to demonstrate that love to others in your tribe, in your organization, in your community. Who's a part of your tribe? We've heard from Tanya the importance of having those supporters, those mentors or sponsor. Who's sponsoring you? Or who might you sponsor and leverage your position of authority or gravitas to show them the way? And I'll leave you with that until next week, good people. Just stay tuned, stay down, and keep your head up. Thanks for listening to the Black Fundraisers Podcast. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to the Black Fundraisers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave a five-star review. Connect with Kia on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter to stay connected.